Two Sundays ago, you realized, if you were here in our service, that there were some men who were from another part of the United States who came in for a conference unrelated to the Bible Church, but who were asked to come that morning. And in the midst of the middle of my message, concluding the Gospel of Mark, they decided to challenge me regarding some of the things that I had been communicating. And as I told you then, I am never one to run away from a challenge. And I certainly wanted to be able to speak with those men. I did not know that they were going to do what they did, of course. And I trust that maybe you were encouraged that even though at times you might be, as I was on that Sunday, challenged publicly to respond to what you believe, to what you believe to be the true teaching of the Word. And so I had the opportunity, of course, as 50 or 60 of you gathered around the pulpit at the end of that service to talk with these men about what they believed. And as a result of that, I heard a number of disturbing things that they said to me. And it really further confirmed how, number one, you should really never disrupt a public service like that, especially if you're a visitor in someone else's local church. But secondly, it really gave me impetus to say, what do we as the Bible Church of Little Rock believe about some of these things? And admittedly, in the five years almost that I've been here, I haven't really spoken to you at length about the issue of the miraculous, the ministry of the miraculous. And clearly, some of the things they said at the end of that service as we were talking together were things that need to be addressed, things that need to be understood. One of the things that they said was, you really don't believe in John 14, 12, do you? And I said, yes, I believe John 14, 12. Of course, that's the passage where Jesus said to his disciples, and greater works shall you do because I go to the Father. And so they challenged me that I really didn't believe in the greater works that are supposed to be the lot, the part and, pol- uh, the part and parcel of the Christian's experience here today, greater works than Jesus himself had done in his earthly ministry. And so as a result of that, I have been doing some meditating on Scripture regarding the ministry of the miraculous. And so tonight, interrupting our series on Defending Your Faith, I want to be able to share with you from the title of tonight's message, The Impact of the Ministry of the Miraculous Under the Heaven Are Miraculous Gifts for Today. Are Miraculous Gifts for Today. Sort of his that he wants his readers to know, Mark reveals to us that Jesus Christ was first and foremost a teacher of the Word of God. Let me say that again. Mark reveals to us that Jesus Christ was first and foremost a teacher of the Word of God. In other words, if there's anything that John Mark, the author of this gospel, wants us to know, it is this, that Jesus Christ came as a teacher. 
He came as a preacher. You've often heard that little phrase that missiologists love to use, God only had one son, and he called him to be a missionary. Well, that's true in one sense. But according to, to John Mark, God had only one son, and he called him to be a preacher. He called him to be a preacher of the word. And we can state this particular mountain peak principle in this way. Jesus came primarily to this earth to teach and preach the good news of the coming kingdom of God. That was not only the preacher himself, but the message of the preacher. He came to proclaim, to preach and teach the good news of the coming kingdom of God. Where does Mark teach that? Well, look in your Bibles, first of all, at Mark chapter 1, verse 14. I told you this was the first and important principle that we find, and so therefore we find it in the very first chapter, Mark chapter 1, beginning in verse 14. Now, after John had been taken into custody, Jesus came into Galilee, notice this, preaching the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. If there was ever a preacher of the word of God, it was Jesus Christ. And if there was ever a message from God, it was this, the good news, the gospel. And what is that good news? The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in that good news. He was a preacher and he preached the gospel. And his gospel message was repent and believe. That's what he was all about. In fact, look at verse 21. They went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and began to what? To teach. That was his ministry. That's, that's what he was all about. Verse 27. They were all amazed, so that they debated among themselves, saying, What is this? A new teaching with authority. Verse 35. In the early morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, and went away to a secluded place and was praying there. Simon and his companions searched for him. They found him and said to him, Everyone is looking for you. Why? Because he just performed a miracle. And they all wanted to clamor around him so he could perform more miracles. And he said to them in verse 38, Let us go somewhere else to the towns nearby so that I may heal. Is that what it says? No. So that I may what? Preach. So that I may preach there also. And, this, and then this incredible statement, for that is what I came for. If you ever want to have a verse that describes the purpose of Jesus Christ coming into the world, it is right there. This is what I came for. This is my ministry. This is what I'm all about. Look at chapter 2, verse 2. And many were gathered together so that there was no longer room not even near the, the door, and he was speaking the word to them. If we're ever going to have a ministry like Jesus Christ, it will be first and primarily a ministry of teaching. Verse 13, And he went out again by the seashore, and all the people were coming to him, and he was teaching them. Chapter 3, verse 14, And he appointed twelve so that they would be with him and that he should or could send them out to preach. 
You see, it was the ministry of Jesus Christ, the ministry of preaching and teaching, and it was also a ministry that he commanded his close followers to be involved with as well. Chapter 4, verses 1 and 2, And he began to teach by the sea. And a very large crowd gathered to him that he got in the boat and in the sea and sat down. And the whole crowd was by the sea on the land. And he was teaching them many things in parables and was saying to them in his teaching. Verse 24, first part of it. And he was saying to them, take care what you listen to. In other words, take care of who teaches you. By your standard of measure, it will be measured to you, and more will be given to you besides. In other words, be aware of what you're taught. Make sure that what your ears listen to is only good teaching. Verse 34, And he did not speak to them without a parable, but he was explaining everything privately to his own disciples. In other words, he had a public ministry of teaching, and he also had a private ministry teaching people one-on-one or in small groups. That's sort of like what Paul did in the book of Acts where he was teaching publicly and from house to house. In Mark chapter 6, verses 1 and 2, we find the same thing. Jesus went out from there and came into his own hometown, and his disciples followed him. When the Sabbath came, he began to teach. He taught in the synagogue. And there were listeners who were astonished. The latter part of verse 6, and he, was a go- and he was going around the villages teaching. You sort of start to have the idea, don't you, that teaching was apparently a very important part of Jesus' ministry. He was a teacher. Verse 8, and he instructed them. Verse 12, they went out and preached that men should repent. Now you see the disciples modeling that same idea. They've been discipled in this teaching ministry, and now he's given them the authority to teach, and now they're beginning to teach. Sounds a lot like that 2 Timothy 2 too, does it? And you find faithful men who will be able to what? Teach others also. Finding faithful men who would be able to teach. Even in Mark chapter 6, verse 34, Jesus went ashore, he saw a large crowd, he had compassion for them, for they were like sheep without a shepherd, and he began to teach them many things. Mark eleven seventeen, same idea. You say you've made your point. We're not finished yet. Mark chapter 11, verse 17. I want you to see the weight of this, the sheer weight that Jesus Christ was a teacher all the way through his ministry, not just in the beginning. It wasn't just that he began to teach, and then after a while, as he taught people, he then started to be a miracle worker. And then when he was finished being a miracle worker, then he died on a tree. No, he was a teacher throughout his whole earthly ministry. Mark eleven seventeen, And he began to teach and say to them. And it's interesting to me that it says, and he began to teach. Well, hasn't he already been teaching? Well, it's a new group. And if it's a new group of people, he what? He began to teach. That was his ministry. Mark chapter 12, verse 35. Jesus is a teacher. And Jesus began to say as he taught in the temple. Verse 38, in his teaching he was saying. Mark chapter 13, verse 10, the gospel must first be preached, Jesus says, to all the nations. There's the great commission listed right there. Mark chapter 14, verse 9, truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is preached in the whole world, speaking there about what this woman had done by anointing him with perfume. And then verse 48, 
Again, the idea of the teaching ministry of Christ. And Jesus said to them, Have you come out with swords and clubs to arrest me as you would against a robber? Every day I was with you in the temple teaching. Isn't that an interesting statement? Every day I was teaching. It was a, it was a part of Jesus' ministry every day to teach. That's what he was all about. He was a teacher of the Word of God. And even look at Mark chapter 16 at the end of the Gospel, verse 7. But go, tell his disciples and Peter, he is going ahead of you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he what? Just as he told you, just as he taught you. I mean, from the beginning of Mark's Gospel right to the end, Jesus is first and foremost a teacher. You say, that's a wonderful principle from the Gospel of Mark. So what for my life? How about this? Do you proclaim the Gospel? Do you proclaim the good news of salvation in Jesus Christ? You say, well, I'm not a teacher like this. I'm not gifted to do that. I didn't say, are you a gifted teacher and do you teach the Word of God? I said, do you proclaim the Gospel of Jesus Christ? And you do it in two ways, by your life and by your lips. You live your life in the gospel way. You, you teach people by the way you live, but you also are commanded, as he said, preaching the gospel to all nations, you are to preach, you are to proclaim, you are to teach. It may be preaching with a small p, not a capital P. It may be with a small t, not a capital T in your teaching ministry, but you are a teacher, you are a proclaimer. In fact, you are an evangelist. We're all to be doing the work of evangelizing others. Your neighbor, your friend, your co-worker, your schoolmate, whoever it may be, maybe your spouse, maybe someone in your family, maybe someone in your extended family. Do you, along with this main facet of Jesus' ministry, tell others as he did about himself, about Jesus Christ? Is that what you do? I mean, this is a major mountain peak principle from this gospel. Do I proclaim the gospel? How easy is that to understand and apply to our lives? Do I preach the gospel message? How often do you tell others about Christ? Are you involved in any kind of communication about Jesus Christ? If you were to tell maybe a schoolmate or a co-worker or maybe even someone in your extended family that you were a Christian, would they be shocked? Would they be shocked because they never really knew, because you'd really never proclaimed that you were a believer in Jesus Christ. I mean, verbally, that you were saying, I can't help but tell you about Christ. I can't help but tell you about what He's done in my life. He's my Lord. He's my Savior. He's the one who has redeemed me from my sin. He's given me eternal life. I love Him. I, I couldn't do anything but proclaim Him to you. That's really a mountain peak principle all the way through Mark's gospel set in very applicable terms. Do I share the gospel of Jesus Christ like others? I may not be able to preach like Jesus did. Who, who is? In fact, when Dr. Zimmick was talking about that overweight guy who wasn't really anything other than a fire and brimstone guy and who knew two verses, I thought he was about to talk about me. I mean, I'm just sort of a one-note Charlie here. I just keep preaching about Jesus Christ. That's all I know. That's all I do. If the truth were known, I don't have any other vocation. I'm terrible mechanically. I have trouble turning on the radio, if the truth were known. I can't do anything else. I don't know how to do anything else. I'm so glad God called me into the ministry because that's all I know how to do. 
I don't know what I would do if I were not in the ministry. I certainly wouldn't be helping you at all because I can't do anything else. All I can do is preach the gospel. You say, is that all you can do? Boy, if you wanted to die, wouldn't you want to be dying saying that's all I can do? That's all I can do. Are you preaching the gospel of Christ? That's a principle that we can readily relate to or be convicted by, right? Principle number two. Principle number two. Mark reveals to us that God the Father confirmed Jesus' deity by performing the ministry of the miraculous. I'll say it again. Mark reveals to us that God the Father confirmed Jesus' deity, His divine essence, by performing the ministry of the miraculous. In other words, when you study the Gospel of Mark, if you just read it from cover to cover in one sitting, one thing that you are going to be impacted by is this. This book talks a great deal about the ministry of the miraculous. And if there's one thing clear about Jesus' ministry is that he was divine because only a divine being can perform the works that he did. I mean, it was absolutely incredible. Just sit down sometime and read through the Gospel of Mark in one sitting and read about all of the ministry of the miraculous. Now, I'm not going to spend a great deal of time on this particular principle because I'm going to talk a lot about it tonight. But at least a few verses that will give us the, the real foundational element of the divinity of Jesus Christ being proved through this miraculous set of occurrences that occurred in his life. Mark, again, chapter 1, verse 9. Mark 1, 9. This is sort of God's introductory confirmation about the deity of Jesus Christ. Look at verse 9. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Immediately coming up out of the water, he saw the heavens opening and the Spirit like a dove descending upon him, and a voice came out of the heavens, You are my beloved Son, in you I am well pleased. And right there in the beginning of Mark's Gospel, God the Father, God the Holy Spirit, and God the Son are prominently placed. You see the Trinity at work right there? God the Father speaks from heaven. That speaks of the deity of God the Father. Then Jesus Christ is there to be baptized, and God explicitly, the Father does, say about him, this is my beloved Son. In fact, he even uses it with that personal pronoun, you are my beloved Son. He's talking directly to the Son, and he says, you are my Son, in you I am well pleased. God the Father is speaking of Christ, and he says, you're my Son. And if you know anything about the Bible, you know that when Jesus is referred to as, as the Son, it doesn't mean that he was generated by the Father physically, it means son that he is of the essence of the father that means the deity of jesus christ that's what it means when he says i'm the son of god or i'm the son of man that is a reference to his deity that's what it means and then of course the spirit of god is listed there with the analogy of a dove it was a real dove but it wasn't the holy spirit because the holy spirit has no form it is the holy spirit as a dove it was showing people on a human level with human terms where you could see with your own eyes that there was a dove descending 
on a particular man, and that was God's, again, confirmation that Jesus was a minister of the miraculous. Why? Because there was a miraculous affirmation of that. God was speaking from heaven. What a, what a thought that must have been. What a sight that must have been. And the Holy Spirit coming down on one person in the form of a dove, that must have been an incredible scene to see. And God was confirming that, was confirming his deity. In fact, there's another one in the middle portion of Mark's gospel in chapter 9, verses 1 to 7, and that's the transfiguration. That's another attestation to the deity of Jesus Christ. God was using him to produce a miraculous occurrence for other people. And what did he do? The Bible mysteriously says somehow he sort of opened his flesh. I don't know if that means he sort of took his hands and put them into his chest and opened himself up, or if this was just this effulging glory that surrounded Jesus Christ, that it was unmistakable what he was all about. The language is not so specific that it tells us exactly what happened, but it does tell us this. Jesus was shown at that moment to be divine. Divine. This is the ministry of Jesus Christ, and it is a ministry of the miraculous. Look at verse 23 of chapter 1. Just then there was a man in their synagogue with an unclean spirit, and he cried out saying, What business do we have with each other, Jesus of Nazareth? That's sort of a, a backdoor affirmation of the deity of Christ. Why? Because this was a demon, and the demon knew exactly who Jesus was. What do we have to do with you? In other words, we don't have anything to do with you because we're of the demonic world. You're of God's world. What do we have to do with you? Have you come to destroy us? Which again implies what? That Jesus has power over them you're going to come to destroy us i know who you are and look at this here's an affirmation from the demonic world you are the holy one of god it's amazing even the demons believe that jesus is god in human flesh don't let ever any cult member tell you jesus christ isn't god even the demons know that even the demons affirm that look at verse 30 Simon's mother-in-law was lying sick with a fever. Immediately they spoke to Jesus about her, and he came to her and raised her up. Miracle. The ministry of the miraculous. Only God can do that. Verse 39. And he went into their synagogues throughout all Galilee, preaching and casting out demons. Only God can do that. Only God and those whom he designates can do that. And he was designated that Jesus Christ had the power to do the ministry of of the miraculous. Mark chapter 3, verse 1. He entered into the synagogue, and a man was there whose hand was withered. They were watching him to see if he would heal on the Sabbath. And he said to the man with the withered hand, Get up and come forward. And he did so. And after looking around at the crowd, he said, Stretch out your hand, verse 5. And he stretched it out, and his hand was restored. Only God can do that. Only God can do that. And God wanted to confirm that Jesus Christ is involved in the ministry of the miraculous because Jesus Christ is divine. Now, I could go through a number of others. For instance, Mark chapter 4, verses 35 to 41. Mark chapter 5, verses 1 to 20. Verses 21 to 24, 35 to 30, 43. Mark 6, Mark 7, Mark 8, Mark 9, Mark 10, Mark 11, Mark 13, Mark 16. Now, see, I told you you are going to be frustrated with me. I could give you all of those passages, and we could do another survey just as we did, but I'm going to hold that off for tonight, but I want you to go to chapter 2, and I'll give you this mountain peak principle in one passage. 
one passage. And this confirms above all others the deity of Jesus Christ. This is the paralytic who was healed. This was the one who was lowered down by his friends who had each end of the four ends of that pallet. They lowered him down into the house, taking that, that roof off. And when they lowered him down, all of the people were around. They came bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men, verse 3, being unable to get to Christ because of the crowd. They removed the roof. They dug an opening. They let down the pallet on which the paralytic was lying. What a ride that must have been. And seeing their faith, said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. But now there were some scribes who were sitting there, verse 6, and they were reasoning in their hearts, Why does this man speak that way? In other words, all they perceived about Jesus was that he was a mere man. He was just a rabbi. He was one of the ones who was simply another teacher come lately. And in addition to that, he was beyond any of their other rabbis because he said in stark terms, in bold relief, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now that was clearly beyond some of those other rabbis. And so these scribes immediately upon hearing that pricked their ears and they said, What? Could this man be blaspheming like this? Only God can forgive sins. Look at verse 7. Why does this man speak this way? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? You see, they had a right theology in some cases. They believed that God alone could say your sins are forgiven. Now, in one sense, it would be true that any of us could say your sins are forgiven, right? I mean, I could say that. I could say right now, I could just sort of with the wave of the hand say, all the sins of everyone in this room are now forgiven. Now, someone might say, but how do I know that? Now, someone might say, but how do I know that? How do I know that? How do I know that you have the authority to with the wave of the hand say everybody's sin is forgiven in this room? How do I know that that's really happened? How do I know that a transaction of the seeking of forgiveness and the granting of forgiveness has come? I can't see in your heart. You can't even see in my heart. You don't even know that I am having the ability to forgive your sins. And if I say so, you don't even know if it's happened. And so, in a demonstration of the ministry of the miraculous, Jesus responded to that very thing because it's true. It's true that if he said, your sins are forgiven, we don't know that to be true unless we see some evidence, some confirmation, some attestation of that. And what do we see immediately, verse 8? Jesus, aware in his spirit that they were reasoning that way within themselves, said to them, why are you reasoning about these things in your hearts? And then he gives this question, which is easier, to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up and pick up your pallet and walk? That's a fair question. Now, if I were to say to you, all of your sins are forgiven, you'd say, that is obviously easier than the next one, right? Because if there was indeed a paralytic who was in the front row, who was in the aisle here, and then I said, get up and walk. Now that, my friends, is a bit tougher, wouldn't you say? And that's exactly the question Jesus posed. And of course, he went one step further. What did he do? He healed him. He said, so that you may know, verse 10, so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. Notice he didn't say that the Son of Man has authority on earth to heal. 
He didn't say that. He said authority on earth to forgive sins because that's the greater issue in a person's life. That's the greater issue in a person's life. There could be people who are paralyzed today but have their sins forgiven, and that's the greater issue for them. That's the greater issue. I'd much rather be paralyzed and have my sins forgiven than be able to walk uprightly by someone's healing and then deny God. And so Jesus said, I want you to know that I have the authority to actually complete the transaction of the forgiveness of sins of this man. And so what did he do? Verse 11, I say to you, get up, pick up your pallet and go home. And I love what verse 12 says, and he rised up. He got up and immediately picked up the pallet and went out in the sight of everyone. And here's my marginal note translation. And he was dancing in the streets. They were all amazed. They were all glorifying God. Why? Because they realized God was in their midst. You don't do that unless you realize God is in this place. God has just done something here. You look throughout the Gospel of Mark and you'll find one amazing truth about the ministry of the miraculous of Jesus Christ. It is there because it is to confirm that He is God in human flesh. That's a great principle. Now you say, how are you going to try to apply that one to my life? All right, how about this? Even though you and I have not been given the ministry of the miraculous like Jesus and the apostles, Here's one thing we can glean from this. Here's one thing we can apply to our lives. First, we can beseech the Lord to mature our faith by praying for God's will in the healing of ourselves or in the healing of others. In other words, if I believe that Jesus is God, if I believe that He is real, if I believe that He does heal people, and even though I may not believe that He does so through a healer today, I can actually go through not the middleman, but through to Jesus Christ himself. I can say, Lord, I don't know if there's a healer out there somewhere in the world. I don't know about that. But one thing I do know is that I have a relationship with you myself. And I can pray to you, and I can ask you to heal me directly. Lord, would you be so pleased to do that? Is this your will for me? I know that you say that the only thing that is according to your will is what you hear and answer in my prayers. And so if this is according to your will, will you heal me, Lord? Will you heal me? And you know what? I bet. No, I shouldn't use the word bet. I would suppose. I would suppose. I would believe that if you and I were to have omniscience, that means we were all-knowing, and we were to look down as God does into his world, we would see miraculous healing happening all over the place. We just don't always hear of it in our little locale, but I bet if we were having a worldwide perspective, we would be amazed at all of the ministry of the miraculous. But it is God himself doing it now because Jesus has already been affirmed as divine. We'll talk more about that tonight. Do you believe that Jesus Christ is the divine Messiah? Do you believe he's the divine healer? You see, part of the reason why Mark wants to present us that great truth is because there was a fair question about who is this man? Who is this rabbi? Who is this teacher? And believe you me, when people were around there and they saw him healing, 
taking a withered hand and restoring it, rising a man up from his paralytic condition, giving sight to the blind, and even raising people from the dead, that was confirmation enough that he is who he is. Number three. Number three. Mountain Peak principle number three. Mark reveals to us that Jesus' most severe, ungodly critics were actually the religious leaders of the day. Jesus' most severe, ungodly critics were those religious leaders, excuse me, of the day who were considered by the people of Jesus' day to be the most godly. Isn't that an amazing truth? The greatest religious leaders of Jesus' day turned out to be the biggest phonies. The most godly turned out to be the most ungodly. Boy, if that's not a, that's not a principle from God's Word, there isn't one. If that's not a great truth for all of us to learn, there isn't one. It doesn't mean that every godly religious leader today is the most ungodly, but there are sure a whole bunch of them that are. Mark chapter 2, verse 6. I just read it to you. But some of the scribes were sitting there and reasoning in their hearts. First problem. They were reasoning in their own hearts. They weren't willing to listen to God himself. They were only reasoning, how could this happen? And because they denied the ministry of the supernatural, they then said to themselves, this can't be the Messiah. Wrong. Look at verse 16. When the scribes of the Pharisees saw that he was eating with the sinners and tax collectors, in other words, they had a preconceived idea about, the, about what the Messiah was going to do, they said to his disciples, why is he eating and drinking with tax collectors and sinners? And of course, the obvious answer to that is, well, who's he trying to reach? It's not the healthy that need a physician, it's the whom? The sick. That's the whole point. Why, why are they concerned about Jesus eating with the sinners and the tax collectors? Because they had a preconceived notion that that's not what the Messiah was to be all about. Wrong. Look at verse 24. The Pharisees were saying to him, look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? If they can't question Jesus in his own work, then they're going to question the people who follow Jesus. Mark chapter 3, verse 2. They were watching him to see if he would heal on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. You see the, you see the issue here? They're just watching the ministry of the miraculous of Jesus Christ not to affirm him, not to lay down and worship him, not to give him great glory as God in human flesh so that they might accuse him. Look at verse 6. The Pharisees went out and immediately began conspiring with the Herodians against him as to how they might destroy him. Is that not incredible? In the first part of the book of Mark, they're seeking to destroy him. In the last part of the book of Mark, they actually succeeded doing it. And everything else in between is showing us that that is what these supposedly most godly religious leaders are really all about. They, in fact, turn out to be the least godly. Look at Mark chapter 7. This shows us in the middle part of the book of Mark exactly what the Pharisees were doing. Look at verse 1. The Pharisees and some of the scribes gathered around him when they had come from Jerusalem and had seen that some of his disciples were eating their bread with impure hands. By the way, that was a tradition that they made up. God never had that. That was what they installed. They'd seen some of his disciples doing this 
For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they carefully wash their hands, thus observing the tradition of the Bible, of the Word of God. No, the tradition of the elders. And when they came from the marketplace, they don't eat unless they cleanse themselves. And there are many other things which they've received in order to observe. The Pharisees and scribes ask him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders? And he says in verse 8, Neglecting the commandment of God, you hold to the tradition of men. See, it's a man-made deal. I follow God. You're following your own tradition. Look at Mark chapter 8, verse 11. The Pharisees came out and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven. To what? To test him. It wasn't a sign. We want to see if you are truly the Messiah. We want to see if you truly are involved in the ministry of the miraculous. No, it says, they say, give me a sign in order that we might test you. It was all a test. Chapter 10, verse 1. He left uh, one place, he went from there to the region of Judea, beyond the Jordan, crowds gathered around him, and according to his custom, he once more began to teach. Some Pharisees came up to Jesus, testing him, and began to question him whether it was lawful for a man to divorce a wife. You see, they're all about testing. Verse 17, as he was setting out on a journey, a man ran up to him and knelt before him and said, Good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And you know what? That was a trick question in his mind. It wasn't sincere, it wasn't earnest. He was trying to question him, test him. Verse 23, And Jesus, looking around, said to his disciples, How hard it will be for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. They were wealthy, and they wanted to keep their money. Mark chapter 11, verse 15. They came to Jerusalem. He entered the temple, began to drive out those who were buying and selling in the temple, and overturned the tables of the money changers. You see, they wanted their money, and they wanted their produce, and they wanted their market, and they wanted their business. And he came along, and he said, Away with this stuff. You've made my father's house a den of robbers instead of what it really is, a house of prayer. And they didn't like that. Boy, here they were right in the temple where ministry is supposed to be doing, where ministry is supposed to be happening. And instead, the Lord Jesus cleansed that temple because he knew exactly what was going on. You guys aren't the most religious. You guys aren't the most godly. You're not the most spiritual. You are, in fact, the most ugly because you prey on people. You prey on widows. You pray these long prayers. You're content with your phylacteries, with your long robes with your incessant devotion. And you know what? You're full of dead men's bones. That's what he said. You can see it also in Mark 12, Mark 14, Mark 15. Read those. Find out how the most godly turn out to be the least godly. You say, you don't have to apply that. I understand that very, very well. You know what the simple application is? If you say you're godly, be godly. If you say you're godly, be godly. Now someone will say, well, since I don't think I can do that, I won't say I'm godly. Well, there are Christians out there who need to be challenged in that area, but if you're a true Christian, as I said, you cannot help but speaking about Jesus Christ. So be godly in addition to saying you're godly. Number four. Number four. Mark reveals to us 
that man's words and actions manifest the true motives of the heart. Mark reveals to us, this is a great principle in Mark's gospel, he reveals to us that man's words and actions manifest the true motives of the heart. Just very quickly, I want to share a few of these with you. Mark chapter 4, verse 14. Mark 4, 14. Jesus taught about the sower sowing the word. And he says in verse 16, in a similar way, these are the ones on whom the seed was sown on the rocky places, who when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy. In other words, there's a, there's a joy at the receptivity of the word. But here's the problem, verse 17. And they have no firm root in themselves, but are only temporary. And then, guess what happens? Affliction, persecution arise because of the word, and immediately they fall away. And so you can see by that principle that if someone says they initially respond joyfully to the word, but because of affliction or persecution, they fall away, and you see in their words and actions that they fall away, guess what is the true motive of the heart? No receptivity ultimately, no joy ultimately to the word of God. Mark chapter 5, verse 25. I love this one because this is positive. A woman had a hemorrhage for 12 years great pain, and endured much at the hands of many physicians. That is not a commentary on what I think about physicians. That is simply what the Bible says. There are a lot of physicians out there who ultimately aren't helpful. I'm glad every physician in our church is helpful. But it says there are many who aren't. And, it's, and it says also that she spent all that she had with those physicians and was not helped at all, but rather had grown worse. I won't comment on that. After hearing about Jesus... She came up in the crowd behind him, touched his cloak, and she thought, if I could just touch his garment, I will get well. And immediately the flow of her blood was dried up, and she felt in her body that she was healed of her affliction. Immediately, Jesus, perceiving in himself that the power proceeding from him had gone forth, turned around in the crowd and said, who touched my garments? And his disciples said, you see the crowd pressing in on you, and you say, who touched me? And he looked around to see the woman who had done this. But the woman, fearing and trembling... So you have really some competing thoughts going on here. First, you have a woman who says, if I can just touch his garments, I will be well. And then when she was found out, she was fearing and trembling, aware of what had happened to her, and she came and she fell down before him and told him the whole truth. Now, if you and I were looking at that like the disciples, and this woman came up, touched Jesus' garment, it might be as those disciples would say, now, woman, stop bothering him. Move away from him. And you know what the true motives of the heart are? The true motives of the heart are that she, even in the midst of fear and trembling, had enough faith that she said, I want to be able to do something in my words and actions. And what did she do? She went, she broke through that crowd. It must have been an amazing scene to have this woman, probably frail, having been hemorrhaging for 12 years. She fought her way through that crowd. She touched the hem of Jesus' garment. Those actions revealed the motive of her heart. And what was it? What was it? I believe God. I have faith that if I just touch this man, Jesus, I'll be well. It was a true motive. Worked out in her actions and in her words. And she fell down and she worshipped God. She worshipped Christ. You know, that was not always the case in the Gospel of Mark. In fact, look at the latter part of the Gospel of Mark. Mark chapter 12. And I'm skipping over several of them that I had purpose to give you, just too many. Mark 12, 42. 
A poor widow came in, put two small copper coins, which amount to a cent. One penny she put in the offering. Calling his disciples to him, she, he said to them, Truly I say to you, this poor widow put more than all the contributors to the treasury. That was an action. Now look, if we were to see some woman in our congregation put one penny in the offering, what might we think if we were sitting next to her? Sheep. She put all she had. This was all she had. We don't despise small things. We don't despise what the Lord is doing by prompting someone to give all they have, even if it's only a penny. You see, we can't always assess the motives of a heart. The only thing we can do, the best thing we can do, is we can look at words and actions, and even then, sometimes we don't know the true nature of the thing. We don't truly know and understand what's going on in that person's heart. But isn't it amazing that even with the Pharisees, Mark gives us insight here? Look, for instance, at Mark chapter 15. Mark 15, verse 10. This is Pilate. What was going on in his heart? Mark 15, 10. He says in verse 9, Do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? Notice this. Here's what Mark tells us. For he was aware that the chief priests had handed him over because of what? Envy. You see, they did some actions, and Mark is letting us in on the issues of the heart. There was envy there. There was envy there. There are some others. Look at verse 15. Wishing to satisfy the crowd... Pilate released Barabbas. Oh, I just love those little throwaway phrases that we don't even think of. Wishing to satisfy the crowd, that's a motive of the heart. That's what he was thinking. We may not always know what the king is doing or thinking. We may not always know what our spouse is doing or thinking, but we know this. Sometimes with words and actions, we can know, and the only thing we should be able to do at that point is ask questions. What is, the, what is your motive? What are you doing? Is this for God? Is this for yourself? Don't assume you know the motives of a person's heart. Only ask questions of those people. I want to know. I want to understand. If you're doing something and the motive of your heart is pure and honorable and right, I want to affirm that with you. If, in fact, though, the motive of your heart is not what it should be based on your words and actions, I want to admonish you. I want to challenge you. I want to exhort you to, to do what God wants you to do. You see? Oh, Mark shows us that. There are several more. Remember Joseph of Arimathea? It said he gathered up courage to ask for the body of Jesus. Isn't that wonderful? Don't assess the motives of people's hearts. Only ask them questions about what they're doing when you see words in action. And you might even, at some cases, be very surprised at what the motives of the heart are. You say, well, they could be lying. That's right. And if they're lying, that's between them and God. Number five, and we'll close. Mark reveals to us, and this is, this is a great way to end. He reveals to us, through his gospel, that Jesus Christ has come to save sinners. That's it. That's the great fifth and final principle. It is the purpose of Mark to show us that we can see the good news both lived out in his life and proclaimed by his death. Need I affirm that principle to you and the application of your own life? Do you know Jesus Christ? Do you know him? Do you believe in him? You and I have studied Mark for, for four years now. You've been sitting here listening to all of these 102 messages. 
Do you understand and apply this grand truth? Look, if you don't affirm all of these other things, you have to affirm at least two of them, and that is that Jesus Christ is divine and that he is a savior for sinners. That's it. You may not understand that Jesus was a preacher of the word of God. You may not understand the motives of the Pharisees or anybody else in the Gospel of Mark. You may not understand all of those things. But one thing you must understand is if you have read this Gospel, then you have the command to obey Jesus Christ. It's a command. You must believe in him. You must respond to him by faith. You must trust him. That's the great consummation principle. That's what we conclude everything with. If I have preached the gospel of Mark to you and you've gone away empty-handed, then I am grieved. If you've listened to the gospel of Mark and you've said, so what? doesn't relate to my life. I don't understand. I disregard it. I don't believe. I'm not a Christian. And my friends, that is the only truth that you must affirm about Mark. Please, I beg you, be reconciled to God through the death of his son. I beg you to come to Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Father, please, please, Father, show us the true nature of our hearts. Challenge us. Shake us. Shake us out of our comfort. Shake us, shake us out of our deception. Shake us out of our disbelief. Bring us to Christ. Allow us to, to mold and shape these principles into a believing life. Oh, Father, save those to whom you will. Bring this good news powerfully to them. Shake them. Regenerate them. And let them read the Gospel of Mark fresh and with spiritual eyes and understand these truths in a greater way. Oh, Father, thank you for this Gospel. Thank you for what we've learned. But Lord, it would be in vain if we do not acknowledge the divinity of Jesus Christ. It would be in vain if we don't affirm the truth of the gospel message. We pray it would be so, Lord. Thank you for our study and for Jesus Christ. Amen.